The title of today's sermon is Gospel Spreading. Again, it's John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. And the title of our message is Gospel Spreading. And so this is God's holy and inerrant word, starting in verse 27. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So then the Samaritans came to him. They asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. We are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today where we're asking, what's the vision of the church? We're going through a number of our core values, all of which are tied to the gospel in some way, and for today, we're thinking about how it's crucial for us that we are a gospel-spreading church. We're focusing today on why spreading the gospel has to be a fundamental part of, our D of Renewal's DNA. First, we, what? We experience the goodness of the gospel. We experience this amazing God who goes out of his way to love us at incredible cost to himself. And when he does that, his love has an impact on us. It, it, it transforms us. So we become like him. We start to love others where we used to be consumed with ourselves. Loving others and then wanting them to have the same chance that we have to know this great God. Now when you look at the life of Jesus, it's very clear that he intends his people to be on this mission of spreading the gospel. Spreading the news that he came to rescue us not only from darkness but also from the darkness inside, from ourselves. And so he calls the early disciples, they were fishermen, he calls them to leave their nets, to follow him, and he would make them fishers of men. They would be disciples who spread the news about him, the news that he would catch them, rescue them. Jesus then trained these disciples, they watched the kinds of things that he did, they listened to him preach, and then he sent them out on mission while he was still on earth, and he sent them out to say and to do the same things that he was doing. And then right before he ascends back to his father, he left them one final command. And that was that they should go out and make disciples of all nations, teaching those new disciples 
to obey everything that he had commanded them, teaching them to keep doing what he trained the original disciples for, to keep living on mission, so that they would keep carrying on the same mission, passing that mission on to future disciples. What's that mean for us as modern-day disciples? It means that that same mission is now our mission. That's why it's one of the core values here at Renewal Mainline. Very clear in Scripture. And yet it's equally clear that it's very easy not to engage in mission, not to live on mission. Very clear that there are things that can get in the way. Substitute missions that, that take us away from this one that Jesus gave. There's things that take us away. There are things inside of us that hold us back from being on mission. We don't believe things. We don't feel things in the same way that Jesus believes and feels those things. And so some of us are not on mission because we get passionate about other things that take us away from mission. Others of us aren't on mission because we have a lack inside. We don't have Jesus' passion for his mission. Both of those things come through our passage today in John chapter 4. Now, if you were with us through, the, through Advent this past year, we went through the first half of this chapter. We learn there that Jesus is on a journey. He's traveling from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, and he has to pass through this area of Samaria. And Samaria is an area that many Orthodox Jews would go around. They would avoid it because in their minds, if you come into contact with a Samaritan, they would make you unclean. Some of their spiritual dirtiness would rub off on you and make you spiritually dirty. So many Jews avoided the area. Jesus didn't. Traveled through it, and he stopped in it. Stopped near a town by a well, and he meets a woman there. And he starts a conversation with her about spiritual things. And over the course of that conversation, progressively, he reveals who he is to her. That brings us up to today's passage, where we learn three things about his mission. First, like I just said, that there are things that can get in the way of us being on mission. Second, that there are things we lack that will keep us from being on mission. And third, that you and I can be restored to mission. Three things for today. What gets in the way, what keeps you away, and what restores you. Point one, things that can get in the way of us being on mission. The disciples come back from town, verse 27, and they marvel. They're surprised to find Jesus talking with a woman because that's just not something that a good rabbi would do. And from their perspective, there are so many things that are wrong with this, so many things that make it look like Jesus has just made a strategic mistake, things that don't make this woman look like someone who you would think would be open to the gospel, someone who is likely to come to faith. Instead, she has too many strikes against her, too many things that put her in the wrong demographic. To start with, and, and this is going to sound offensive to our ears, it should be offensive to us, it's wrong, but to start with, she's female. And in that culture, you just don't spend time talking theology with females because doing that takes you away from actually the study of theology. Now, Jesus obviously doesn't think so, but his society did. And so the disciples are surprised. Strike one in their minds. Strike two, she's well-versed in her own religion. She already told Jesus, verse 20, hey, we Samaritans, we know where to worship. It's on this mountain. You Jewish people, however, you have a different idea, but from her vantage point, all truth is relative. 
all roads lead to heaven, right? So I'm just going to stick with what I already know. She's entrenched in her own religious beliefs. Strike two. Here's strike three. She's left conventional morality far behind. Been married five times, is now living with somebody else. And you realize that for her to do that, to run against God in God's world, you have to what? You have to harden your heart to do that. Which means it's very unlikely that she'll be at all open to a conversation about faith. Strike three. And then strike four. I know there's really only three. Strike four. From our perspective, she's older. And the current received wisdom of our age is that it's easier for young people to convert than for older people. From our perspective, older people tend to harden their beliefs and their thoughts as they get older and older. And there's been a number of studies that have come out last couple of decades from well-respected organizations like the Barna Group, National Association of Evangelicals. And they report that most Christians come to faith before age 18. We tend to read studies like that, and we don't stop to think and apply our faith to that information. But instead, we conclude, oh, well, it must be easier to convert young people than older. So let's focus on young people and on getting them to come to Christ. What can we do to make that happen? And we don't stop to think. Wait a minute. Scripture is really, really clear that it is God who changes hearts, not me, not you, not the church, not programs, that we are all spiritually dead because we're part of the human race, and that it takes a divine act of God, it takes a miracle for God to raise a young spiritually dead person or an old spiritually dead person. It takes the same amount of energy and the same amount of power to bring someone spiritually to life, regardless of how old they are, where they've been, what they've done. We don't stop to think about how our faith actually engages the data, but we think, oh, we need to focus on our youth right now or it's all over. And in that moment, we do two things. We reduce the problem. We think that bringing someone to life spiritually is a matter of the right technique, the right approach. We reduce the problem, think, okay, we can pull that off, and we elevate ourselves to the place of we can make this happen. And consequently, we pay less attention to those who are sitting by the side of a well who, in our minds, have aged out. We don't think about our neighbors. We don't think about the people we work with. We don't think about the people that we go to college with. They're too old. They're not going to come to faith. They're hardened. And so it'd be really easy to look at this woman and think, strike four, there's really no point in having a conversation with her. And yet this woman, who does not fit into any of the right demographics, this woman comes to faith. Now John never says that she actually believes, but take a look at what comes out of her life. You realize that she's expressing all of the actions of someone who does believe. She comes to faith, and she believes what? That other people could come to faith too. That it's possible. If it's possible for her, it's possible for others. And so verse 28, she gets up and goes back to town. She forgets her water jar there at the well. And the symbolism is really powerful. You have to go back again into Advent. You have to remember what we talked about in verse 14, when Jesus said that he can give her living water inside of her that'll take away her thirst forever. 
he promised that he can put a source of life inside of her that'll keep bubbling up. It'll keep renewing her, restoring her, so that her soul will never thirst again. And what's the very first thing that she does? She leaves behind the old water jar. And you're supposed to understand now that there is something that has happened. Something is now bubbling up. Something is more rich for her, more satisfying than the kind of water that she came here to draw. Or you look at what she does next. She goes back to the town. Remember, back to the people that she's worked so hard all morning to avoid. And instead of sidestepping them, she goes up to them and she starts conversations with them. Now, she's not interested in theological debates, not having theological arguments, philosophical arguments. What is she doing? She's saying to people, this is what it's like for me to actually be in a conversation with Jesus. This is the way he treated me. These are the things that I learned. Would you be interested in a conversation too? This is a person who does not fully understand who Jesus is at this point in time. She's not well-versed in theology, doesn't have an inkling about apologetics, has had no training in evangelistically sharing her faith, but there is something very real that has taken place inside of her. And she doesn't think that that's just normal for her, that she's unique, that's normal for people to come to faith. She thinks everybody could come to faith, even if they look to us like they're outside of all the right demographics. She thinks it's normal for her. She thinks it's normal for other people to want to come to faith too. And so she goes to this town, this community of adults who are also outside the right demographics. And she shares her experience with them of meeting Jesus. No formal training. She just shares her experience. Here's a man who told me everything I ever did, and she asks a question. Can this be the Christ? It's an invitation. Come check him out. And then she leaves the results in God's hand. And what happens? Verse 39, God brings spiritually dead people to life. Not one or two, verse 39, but many of them believe. Many people who were spiritually dead are now spiritually alive. Jesus then spends a couple more days with them, and now, verse 41, many more became believers. What's happening here? Revival has come to town. Faith is breaking out in places that you don't expect it to. And you realize that below the surface level of everyday life, that there is a spiritual hunger inside of people. These folks in town, they've been going about their daily activities, living life with something missing. They've been wanting something more. We talk about this at Renewal regularly that God has made all of us to have a relationship with him. And that if you're not connected with him, there's this hunger inside, this ravenous desire that you feel that can only be satisfied by connecting with God. And all this woman has done is gone back and said, hey, he's here. Could this be the Messiah? Would you like to come and meet him? Which makes me ask, why? Why is it that a town 2,000 years ago in Samaria comes to believe that Jesus really is the Savior of the world? And 2,000 years later in the suburbs of Philadelphia, so few people say, 
I've come to faith in Christ after age 18. Why is that? It is not because the nature of people is any different 2,000 years later. It is not because the message of Christ is somehow less relevant for today than it was 2,000 years ago. I suspect that part of the problem, part of the reason, has a lot to do with you and me. With us having the same kind of confidence that the disciples had. See, they don't really expect anything. They don't expect faith to take root in people. And if Jesus and the woman had the same faith that the disciples had, revival would not have broken out that day. Yes, God is the one who brings people to life, but he brings the message that he's the life giver through his people, through people who spread this news about him, because they're looking, they're looking around to see who else might be interested, who else might come to faith. The disciples are not looking for faith. They're surprised that Jesus is talking to this woman. Now, obviously, there's the gender thing that's a surprise, but it's more than that. They're also telling you, we don't really expect anything to come out of this conversation. We don't expect this woman to actually have an interest in spiritual things. We don't expect that a conversation with her about spirituality would make a bit of a difference. How do you know that's what they're thinking about her? Because it's what they've already showed that they're thinking of everyone in that area. Think about what they did. They went into town and they brought back food. But they didn't bring back any people. The woman has to go all the way back into the town, the town that they just came from, in order to talk to anyone. And you realize that the disciples just showed back up with food, which is not the real reason that they're disciples. What did Jesus call these guys to do? He called them to be with him, to learn from him, so that he can send them back out with his same message, so that just like him, they too would be fishers of men. They all know that. But it doesn't shape how they live. They went into town, but they didn't bring that message to the town. These are the same disciples who heard John the Baptist when he pointed at Jesus. They heard John say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Jews. But the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the Samaritans. The disciples heard that. But they're not going into town proclaiming that message. These are the disciples who already know what ministry is. You go back into this chapter, verse 2, and, and Jesus had them baptizing. He had them t learning to think beyond the physical reality of life, teaching them about the necessity of a new life, of being spiritually cleansed. They know this, and they've practiced it, and they did not go into that town and say, hey, we need some food, but there's actually something much more important that we could do for you. It will cost you nothing. There's this rabbi out here sitting at the well. He's a phenomenal teacher. He will help you see God in ways that you've never seen God before. And as you listen to him a little bit longer, you also might start to wonder, 
could it be that he's the Messiah? They're not doing that. The woman is. This woman, out of all the right demographics, this woman has more of Jesus' heart and passion than the disciples do. She's become a fisher of men. Now, if the ministry and the mission of Jesus is not on the disciples' hearts and minds, what is? What, what, what's uppermost? What is of such great importance that it's driven all thought of ministry out of their heads? Verse 31, what are they doing? They're urging Jesus to eat. They can't imagine anything more important in this moment than that Jesus have lunch. And because they're so fixated and so focused on the physical reality in front of them, they are missing the cosmic significance of what's taking place. They are missing that men's and women's eternal destiny is at stake. Eternal life versus eternal death. They're in the balance. They're about to be weighed out. The Samaritans are coming. In half an hour, Jesus is going to have a conversation. And that is completely off the disciples' radar. Because they're utterly consumed with the present moment. If you left it up to the disciples, there would be no revival. There would be no conversations about faith, no expectation. There'd be lunch. They'd walk up to Jesus, unpack the food they brought, sit down around the well, eat a little bit, then pack it all up and say to each other, well, I guess it's time. Really ought to get back on the road again, get on with our journey. We wouldn't want to miss out on all the ministry opportunities that there are up in Galilee. And they would completely miss out on what God was doing right there in front of them. And the worst part of it is, is that they would never know it. They'd have been happy with their small religious fellowship. Happy to be together, happy to belong, happy to have spiritual things to do. Happy without being disciples. Without being transformed at their core. Happy to have a religious coding on the surface of their life. Coding that didn't go very deep, that did not reorient them around Jesus and around his mission. And you look at the passage and you wonder, how is that possible? How can you be so out of step with God? That's not a question, by the way, that you're asking about them. It's a question for us, right? Because if they can do it while literally walking with Jesus, you and I can do it too. It's possible because they lack four things. Four things that if they had, then they would have fully engaged the mission that morning. So point two, what is it that they're missing? What are these four things? First, verse 32, they have no idea that you can be so spiritually satisfied that the physical things in life take a back seat. Verse 32, Jesus tells them that he has food to eat right now in that moment, and they have no idea what he's talking about. So they start talking with each other. Verse 33, someone come by when we weren't here, slip him a little lunch, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and they were walking past the well. 
They have no idea in that moment that the spiritual life is so rich, it's so robust, it's so filling, it's so incredibly satisfying. It'll drive food right out of your mind. The woman gets it. She's found something that quenches her thirst so well she forgot her water jar. Left that behind. She's on board in a way that the disciples are not. They don't have that sense of deep spiritual satisfaction that both Jesus and this woman have. That's one. Second thing that they're missing, they don't have a sense of mission. Jesus tells them, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Think, okay, what, what is the will of him who sent you? In other places, he'll clarify that. He'll say that I came to seek and to save the lost. That's the will of the Father. Seek out the lost. Rescue the lost. That's what God is most interested in. That's what's on Jesus' heart. And so Jesus might be tired, might be thirsty that day, might be from a different culture, different ethnicity from the Samaritans, different gender from this woman. And Jesus puts all of that to the side because this woman and this town need to be found. And that's what he's interested in. So he puts his tired, thirsty self aside to pursue her and to pursue her town. And the woman, in turn, owns that same mission. What do the disciples do? doing? They go off to town in order to seek out food and bring it back to Jesus. The woman goes into town to seek out people to bring them back to Jesus. Which one has God's mission on their mind? It's not the disciples. The ones who've been walking with him, being taught by them, him. It's this woman who has barely had a full-length conversation with him. She gets it. The disciples, they don't have a sense of mission. Third thing they don't have, they also don't have a sense of urgency. Jesus tells them that strange proverb, verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? What's the point of that saying? It's underlined that there's a gap between when you plant crops and when you harvest them. And so it's to motivate you to get planting during the sowing season because if you don't plant, you're not going to harvest. Because when you plant, you have to wait, and you have to wait patiently. And Jesus brings out that saying because he wants to draw a contrast between what they know is true in the physical world and what is happening spiritually right in front of them. Because Jesus is what? He's sowing and he's reaping right now, and they're happening simultaneously. And so he urges them, verse 35, lift up your eyes. Open your eyes. Can't you guys see what's taking place here? The fields are ripe for harvest, and they're ripe right now. People are ready to be saved. And again, we're not talking about a few people. We're talking about many people who actually want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Talking about many more who are ready to believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And so Jesus is saying, guys, it's happening right now, and you're missing it. You see people in front of you, but you don't see what's really going on. 
There's urgency in his voice. Lift up your eyes. There's an awareness that God's on the move, that God is doing something. Sense of urgency to Jesus. Sense that in this moment, that God is at work in people's lives. And because this is what God is doing, because Jesus can see it, he says, you know what? <laughs> I'm going to put the food to the side. Because I can't put this other to the side. It's way too important. And again, this woman's on board. Think about what she does. She leaves a conversation with God. This blows my mind. She's got this one-on-one -on -one interaction with the Lord, with the man who told her everything about herself. She's got insight that this is the Messiah. She's hanging out, chatting with the Christ. And she ends that relationship, leaves that. Why? Because she thinks that other people need to have the same thing that she just got. She has this sense that, wow, I've come to faith. What does that mean? It, it, it means that God is on the move. And if God is on the move in my life, well, surely he wants to be on the move in other people's lives as well, and I want to be involved in whatever God is doing, wherever he's doing it. She has this sense of urgency that the disciples don't. They have no sense of spiritual satisfaction, no sense of mission, no sense of urgency in part because they have no sense of people's need. Why would Jesus go without food? Why would he put his tiredness aside? Why would he have this sense of urgency? It's because, verse 36, there's a crop that might be harvested of eternal life. That's what people really need. Do people need to have food? Do they need to have water? Of course. But you can have food, and you can have water. You can have shelter, you can have clothing, and if you don't have eternal life, it doesn't really matter because all those things will be taken away. See, if you have all those other things, if you have all of your physical needs met, but you don't have eternal life, you die forever. But if you lack all those physical things, yet have eternal life, you'll live forever. Jesus understands there's a priority here. So when he looks at people, he's focused on their primary need. He meets the other needs as well. You see him meeting them in, the mir in his miracles. He's demonstrating God's love to the people. But he understands that the real need is that people come to eternal life. Jesus and the woman are focused on people living forever. The disciples are focused on their next meal. And because of that, they have no idea what they're about to miss out on. Verse 36, that the sower and the reaper get to rejoice together. So Jesus might be hungry, but he's about to rejoice. He's about to be glad. The woman left her jar there. She might be thirsty, but she's about to be glad. She's sowing, he's reaping. They're sowing and reaping together they're going to be glad together. It's the disciples who are going to miss out on being glad because they've sidelined themselves. They're not in the game, not involved in what God himself is doing. They're missing the mission, feeling no urgency, and ignoring people's real need. And you look at what's taking place here. I look at this, 
and realize it is way too easy to live like the disciples. Way too easy to get caught up in the physical world and become consumed with physical things and miss the spiritual realities that are all right in front of you. Way too easy to be embarrassed at the questions that this passage makes you ask. Questions like, when was the last time that you were so spiritually satisfied, so filled up spiritually, that it didn't even occur to you to eat or drink? Or when was it the last time that God's mission compelled you to drop what you were doing because you sensed that God was on the move in someone else's life and you didn't want to be anywhere except involved with them in what God was doing? Or when was the last time that the same urgency that moves Jesus from heaven to earth is the same urgency that moves inside of you to go next door, to go to that student who's in another room? The urgency that says the fields are ripe and they're ripe right now, ripe and need to be harvested. Or when was the last time that you looked at people, you, you sat back at Starbucks for just a moment, sort of glanced around the room, you looked out your window at home, you thought about the students sitting next to you in class, and the thought crossed your mind that without faith in Christ, the people I'm looking at are eternally dead. When was the last time you had those kind of thoughts? When, when did you last let yourself look at people and think to yourself that apart from Christ, they're spiritually dead? When did you believe that God didn't want to save just one or two of those people, but many? Or to be more fair to the passage, that he wanted to save many more? ask those questions, you realize they're not hypothetical questions that you would ask the disciples if the disciples are here. They're, they're questions for you and me, because the passage is written for you and me. Written to get us to wrestle with these kinds of questions. And they're not just questions for you and me as individuals, but they're questions for us as a church. Will renewal be a church that is absolutely passionate about the mission of Christ? So passionate that we give ourselves to it urgently, that on a regular basis, food, drink, all those kinds of things, just not what we're thinking about. Or will we be a church that too easily gets wrapped up in nice things? Things that are nice, but things that take us away from the real mission of what God put us on earth for. Will we give ourselves to what is essential or to what makes life comfortable. I hope you feel some of the unsettledness this morning that I feel. Because I suspect that every one of us has to say, I, I don't feel the same urgency that moves God's heart for this world. I don't feel the need that drove Jesus to get up from his throne so that he could sit down on a well I don't feel the same sense of mission that called this woman to get up from where she was in a conversation with God to go talk to people who hated her, despised her. I don't have that same passion all the time. What do you do with that if you're 
uncomfortable this morning like me. Well, there's a couple things we could do. I, I could end here. We could all go home and we could feel guilty. Some of us would try to distract ourselves with something once we got home. Probably have lunch. Eat until the guilt went away. Others of us would probably try to use the guilt and use it to motivate ourselves. Might say something like, well, you know what? Jesus has done so much for me. I ought to do this little thing for him and try to leverage ourselves into being missional. Others of us, the can-do people, will tell ourselves, I can do better. I can make this work. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to go home, make a list of all the people I know, and I'm going to start praying for them regularly. I'm going to start working my way through the list. I'm going to invite people to church. I'm going to invite them to CG. You can try all of those things. And they'll probably work. Probably push the guilt away for at least a little while. But you'll miss the point of the passage. Because the passage is really about the transformation that comes when you meet someone who can give you living water. Someone, point three, who's on a mission to restore you and to restore me back to his mission. That's what the passage is about. It's about meeting someone who can so dramatically transform you that you end up just like this woman. Who can so dramatically transform you that you become like the disciples became, not like they are here, but like they become after Jesus rises from the dead when he pours his spirit out on them. It's a very unflattering passage for the disciples, but it's not the last word on them. These are the same guys who later in the book of Acts are so passionate about the mission, they don't care what they suffer. They don't care how they're persecuted, just as long as they get to communicate this message to someone else. They turn the world upside down, and you realize they got it. They didn't stay stuck here. They got it. But they didn't get it on their own. They don't wake up in chapter 4, absolutely oblivious to their own need. But Jesus isn't. See, Jesus is tired. He's thirsty. He's hungry. Puts that all aside, not just to talk to the woman not just to talk to the Samaritans, but he talks to the disciples. He's chosen them. They're his disciples. And so what? He takes responsibility for what they're not getting. That's on him. And he takes responsibility in exactly the same way that he did with the woman. He takes something from the physical world that they can see. Food. Something they're very familiar with. And he uses it to craft a metaphor about something in the spiritual world that they can't see. He takes it on himself. And you learn here, he didn't just come to seek and to save the lost. He came to transform those who are found. They're his guys. And so he's going to teach them, convict them, and help them live a different life. But they're going to need more than just teaching and good instruction. You realize that if that's all that they needed, he didn't have to come to earth, squeeze himself into a body, right? He could have just written everything down then handed them the instruction manual. If that was all they needed, they could then live happily ever after. He came to this earth, why? Why was that necessary? He hints at it there in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me 
and to accomplish his work. To accomplish, to finish his work. What is that? That's foreshadowing. Jesus is foreshadowing the rest of his life. If you're familiar with the book of John, you know that toward the end of his life, Jesus talks about having accomplished, having finished the work that God gave him to do. It's the very last thing he says in the last few minutes of his life on the cross. In chapter 19, verse 28, we read, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's a horrible passage. The one who gave the Samaritan wo woman living water was thirsty. He drank down her sin. He drank down the sin of the disciples. He drank down your sin and my sin, and it left him utterly parched. He said, it's finished. I've drunk it all down, and there's nothing satisfying, nothing life-giving in any of it. I thirst. But it's finished. There isn't any more left to drink. And then he gave up his life. In order for her to have the eternal life he told her about, in order for the disciples to have eternal life, Jesus had to give up his own. And he did. He did that for her. He did it for the town. He did it for the disciples. Yes, they needed to be taught, but they needed a whole lot more. They needed to have taken out of them, removed from them, this obsession with the physical world that kept getting in the way of joining in his mission. But they needed more than just to have something taken away, something removed. They needed to have something put back in. They needed to be transformed. They needed a godly obsession. An obsession that drove them to ask, what is God doing? How do I get on board with that? Where is he? I can't stand not being with him, doing what he's doing. These guys needed exactly the same thing that you and I need. They needed his life inside of them. How do you get that? You ask him. He offered you ask. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to transform those that he found. And so you ask, can I have that same urgency, that same passion for you, for your mission, for your kingdom, that same passion that you have? I invite you to just take a few minutes now as we get ready to receive communion, just think over what is it that God wants for you to take away from this passage? 